Bungacast, welcome all potentially 8 billion of you. Um, many of you screaming shitbags, but also many uh, humans very capable and creative, able to uh, produce and even change the very conditions uh, that make their life possible. So, um, you know, humans on balance, pretty, pretty good. What do you think, George? You're talking about normal people, though. You're not talking about podcasters. No, yeah, they, also, this is, this is the topic of the discussion. We are literally just screaming shitbags. We are screaming shitbags exclusively. You can't, dis- you can't say this is the conclusion and then let's have a discussion about it. This is what we need to decide over the course of debate and argumentation and all these other other kind of human activities. So, but yeah, humans in general, I'd say I'm a fan. Yeah. Good. Then I think that's a that's a, a wholesome starting point. Uh, today, we're actually very much on the topic and be talking about proposals for degrowth. Phil. Yeah, so this has been um this has been floating around for a while. And you can trace back some of the de I mean, some of this degrowth thing, you know, you can trace back to Club of Rome stuff in the 1970s. And obviously also um one of the criticisms of the degrowth stuff is that it has its roots um back in Thomas Malthus himself. So prior to the Industrial Revolution. Um, Tell us what the Club so- of Rome is. Yeah, the Club of Rome. So this was a kind of a, um, a one of the early kind of proto networks that developed in the 1970s alongside fora like um, the G7, um, among others. And it was uh, supported by the Ford Foundation. And it put together a vision of why diminishing resources and population explosion meant that there had to be restraints to what people could expect. Um, and that if there was to be, um, you know, if there was to be kind of, um, if there was to be any redistribution, it would have to come from a static um, pool of resources and wealth, essentially. So the Club of Rome kind of was um, emblazoned a certain vision of stasis, essentially economic stasis as a result of environmental limits and stresses. And so many, you know, all this discussion in the post-war period, at least, always circles back to the Club of Rome. So all that said, though, the point is, right, the reason we're talking about it is because it seems to be back in the air in a very particular way, and especially on the left. Um, And there's also been an influential, I mean, alongside these discussions of degrowth, which have been floating around kind of... um, green circles i suppose for a long time there's also an influential strain of eco-marxism that has been around for a while and it's associated principally with the work of um the late mike davis but especially john bellamy foster and though that uh, the vision of eco-marxism is broader than degrowth there is a renewed interest in degrowth specifically and i suppose the most some of the most prominent figures associated with this would be um jason hickel for those in social media uh kohei saito a japanese marxist who's just released a book on degrowth which has apparently sold tremendously well in japan and is making through in um, an english translation shortly and also andreas malm's work um and in particular his idea of the bolshevik 
model of war communism as the paradigm for the green transition to today. And listeners might recall we discussed um, both Malm's book and we also had Malm on as a guest in episode 168. So before we get more into the maybe some of the specific flexes around degrowth at the moment, I wondered how did you go? How do you guys understand degrowth, and when did you encounter the idea? Yeah, so I guess degrowth. Um, it sort of seems to me like there are you have the the less growth, and then the less importance of growth. Different sorts of ways of doing it. So you have kind of growth isn't worth it. We need to de. We need to kind of shrink our economies. You have like people saying that you know, and which is which is true that capitalism um produces irrationally so you know you could you could reorder production and decrease it and then you have a, a i guess it's a you know somewhat aligned this we put too much importance on growth instead of gdp let's have a kind of happiness index or or something like that and i guess first encountering this idea and it's probably changed a lot since then this would have been like the noughties uh late noughties probably you know very much associated with environmentalism and it wasn't so much of a thing then, but the Optimum Population Trust, which I think they at Attenborough's the the patron of, you know, that kind of environmental, like environmentalism that sees humans as like essentially like threats to 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 the the true, the nice, the the natural world. So yeah, I guess it's it's been around for a little while, but it definitely wasn't as as big a thing um, in the in the noughties as it is today. It didn't have the same sort of intellectual So when did you first encounter it? Yeah, like late noughties probably. I can't remember the, you know, it wasn't like some, it wasn't first looking on Chapman's Homer where it was like, oh, this thing, it's now imprinted on my mind the first time I ever saw it. Um, but yeah, probably around that that time. And I, I, yeah, I didn't, I don't really remember though. It's, um obviously read Malthus and, and all that sort of thing seriously again maybe in the yeah probably late noughties I wonder if it was partly mainstream do I remember um there's that scene in the first matrix where um agent Smith uh, played by Hugo Weaving is uh, tormenting or torturing uh, Keanu Reeves the hero in the first matrix movie oh, and here in all the movies but anyway and he says like um he says human being he says something like human beings are a virus um on the planet and that kind of idea of um humans as pestil as a pestilence essentially pestilential kind of or humans are the plague rather than um the plague on humans i think that was probably i think that was probably a moment in which it kind of packaged in that way and the success of the matrix movies it probably articulated something that was already you know in the air um, mm. and popularized and packaged up a particular view of humanity that had been bubbling away for a long time you know in various kinds of eco eco um and green and environmental ideas of humanity overburdening the planet and then it was finally kind of thrust forward in the fully in this kind of fully misanthropic form and popularized in that film. Yeah, I do remember going to the zoo and um, like there was this thing like the most cue, the most dangerous animal in the world. And there was a cage and you kind of like went around the corner and then you realized it was a mirror and like it was humans. It was you who is the most dangerous animal in the world. Um, and that was probably considerably earlier than, than my like other uh, interaction with it but yeah well, i well, guess it's um... harambe would no no doubt agree if he if he were still with us 
So uh, oh, yeah, I mean R.I.P. Harambe. Oh, but... such, such a lame, lame effort to be. <laughs> oh, but come on, we're, do, we're down with the kids. <laughs> um, no, but this was obviously a little, yeah, a little bit earlier. I think that yeah, you're right though. It, there, there was a point in which it became a more fully realized philosophy than just some kind of residual, more kind of environmentalist um, kind of common or garden anti-humanism. Um, yeah, I'm not yeah, sure so... I would say the Matrix movies were fully developed philosophy, but, um, you know, I don't know, maybe. I mean, obviously, maybe you use the Matrix in teaching. You're one of those cool philosopher tutors who would offer your students the red pill and the blue pill, George. I don't know. I mean, sitting on the table is a classic teaching move. Um, <laughs> and it's under, I was going to say it's underused. Maybe it's not underused anymore. Um, no, I was, ne- I was never a cool teacher. I was, if it's one minute late, it's late. You get zero marks and I'm not going to read it, sort of teacher, which is probably why I don't think many of my ex-students are, are particularly sad I'm not doing that anymore. But anyway, <laughs> Alex, I think you were going to contribute yeah. something a bit no, more. No, I mean, I, 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 I agree with you in terms of, you know, the sort of vague kind of nihilistic vibes that were in the air and transmitted into cultural product, um, an environment, kind of certain deep green ideas. And I remember... Um, kind of writing and, and thinking and arguing a lot about this around the late 2000s, especially, you know, before the global financial crisis, or maybe, you know, in that period shortly after before it, um, you know, it, it kind of came to consciousness that this meant things had significantly changed. Um, and so it was all around then, but I, I only encountered degrowth as a kind of more structured sort of idea and proposal in a more mainstream fashion relatively recently. I mean, I remember, I think we even on this podcast, we've remarked, you know, in trying to kind of, you know, periodize the present, trying to kind of understand our place in in recent history, that, you know, that that the 2000s were, especially in in Britain, I mean, you know, was very much uh, dominated by environmentalism and environmental claims at that time, or in in the most, um, you know, kind of lightweight, um, superficial way possible. So it was all about, you know, kind of recycling, taking, you know, green bags, whatever stuff that the, the, the same type of people today actually satirize and criticize as being completely superficial. Right. Um, so back then it was all these kind of like little happy clappy initiatives um, for how to save the planet. And now those same people are um, basically treat those um, sort of practices as completely, um, you know, unsatisfactory or even you know explicitly as like capitalist ideology and instead we need to be degrowth um so there's a certain kind of like radicalization there as well as a mainstreaming at the same time so yeah anyway as a way of trying to get to trying to a little bit like clean up my understanding of what degrowth was degrowth is now in terms of its proposal i've tried to kind of break it down in terms of its different um claims and i mean i i haven't done an exhaustive you know kind of research of, of um all degrowth claims but just reading a couple of things where they argue for degrowth um i think we can categorize it a bit and you know guys jump in obviously if um uh if you think something's missing or i i missed you know mischaracterize something but so firstly in, in environmental terms i think there's a kind of strict approach in terms of degrowth is necessary to decarbonize, to reduce carbon emissions. And then there's a kind of wider um, environmental claim, which is really about saving the planet in, in broad sense. It's about finite resources, about pollution, about extinction of species and indeed of humans. Um, so there's kind of, you know, a kind of narrow claim on environmental terms and a wider one. Socially, 
there's an anti-consumerist angle, basically the idea that there's too much stuff um, and that we need to degrow the economy because there's um, we're filling up the world with crap, which obviously has its environmental repercussions, but it's also a, a claim about you know human sociability that you know that people are going after. Um, consumer goods, but wanting SUVs and wanting you know little consumer baubles and whatever, um, instead of focusing on what matters. And there's there's a kind of second claim very closely related to that, also on the social terrain, which is I, I mean I, I classed it kind of here as decelerationist, but basically it says that you know we should focus on the things that matter. Degrowth would allow us to have more peace, more free time, more meaningful lives dedicated to meeting meaningful pursuits, rather than um, the um, infinite growth of where we're constantly pursuing more production, more consumer goods, more of everything. And instead we can, um, you know, make do with less and have a more um, meaningful, uh, connected social existence. Um, you know, it's a, effectively breaking away from the infernal machine that is capitalism. Um, you know, that at least that's how it's presented. There's a couple, set of like economic claims, um, which I think are, I, we've already hinted at, but one is uh, focused on well-being, which says, you know, GDP is a poor measure of well-being, which is well-trodden ground by now, um, you know, even kind of in the mainstream economic discussions, um, and that instead we should degrow because we can focus on, um, you know, welfare effectively, on well-being, on the goods that are essential or mo most important and not um, pursue ever-expanding growth. And then Following on from that, there's a, a, a claim, I think, which is basically redistribution is more important than production. We can stop production. We can stop producing ever producing ever more, um, going out, stop going after growth and instead effectively settle accounts. So if we redistribute the present, we redistribute all the wealth that there is now, um, we'll be far better off. Um, and that obviously has a claim at a level of the nation state. So there can be redistribution to a kind of median level within the nation state or globally even. Um, and that, you know, the, certainly the left wing degrowth argument is very much premised on that. Um, stop growth and have equality instead. Um, and then there's some philosophical claims, which is basically, one is, is basically the cancer metaphor that basically... It, Eternal growth is impossible. It logically makes no sense. The logic of ever continuing growth is the logic of cancer. It's a metastasizing society, and therefore um, something which is, you know, evil, damaging, um, impossible, etc. Um, and then associated with that is the general kind of apocalyptic Malthusianism, which we've already kind of referenced, um, that the world is going to completely burn up it you know there's limits to growth it's impossible to continue um and infinitely expanding and this is at a kind of a level of abstraction beyond just the kind of specific environmental or economic claims now okay so th those are like four cat four categories environmental social economic and philosophical notably i haven't mentioned political and i think partly because degrowth doesn't seem to have a very strong political claim which might be a problem um what is its understanding of politics maybe that growth you know, empowers the already powerful, right? That it's capitalists who want growth because they make more money off of it and it's not good for us, but that perpetuates the power system that exists. At most, I think that's its political claim. Ultimately, in the absence of, of any real politics, it defaults to emergency politics. It defaults to basically um, anything goes because, you know, um, we have to get off the growth train immediately for all these environmental reasons as well as the social um, and economic ones and therefore um you know it needs to um avail itself of claims about emergency and therefore everything is possible in or everything is permitted um in pursuit of of you know pulling the handbrake there mm -hmm.
Hey there, you've reached the end of a short excerpt from an episode that's been released only to our patrons. If you'd like to join us and gain access to around two Patreon-exclusive episodes a month, please go to patreon.com slash We'd love to have you.